All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22 to get started. And Lord willing, we'll finish all of chapter 22 tonight to keep us up with where we left off Tuesday. Matthew 22, verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and went away. Now it's noticeable as we take a look at this part. Remember last week we ended up with the fact that they were trying to trap him in his words. But it's interesting who's partnering together right now to trap Jesus in his words. What two groups are partnering together in these verses to get him? The Herodians and the Pharisees. Folks, if you didn't know this, the Herodians and the Pharisees didn't like each other. The Herodians were Jews who were excited about the fact that Rome was in control. They liked Herod being over them. Because in their mind, they were a part of a big nation and a big power and things were going to be good. They were a political group, not a religious group, the Herodians, but they loved Rome being in power. The Pharisees were a religious group, not a political group, and they didn't like the fact that Rome was in power because that meant they weren't fully in power like they usually were when they were one nation under God back as a nation of Israel. These two groups do not like each other at all, but they had a common goal. Anybody want to take a wild guess of what their common goal was? Silence Jesus. And take it a step further to have him put to death. Their common goal that made them partner together was they both wanted Jesus dead. Let me show you what I mean. Go to John chapter 11. Look at verses 45 through 53. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45. This is after Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, that's their attitude, and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Pharisees are wanting him dead. Look over at Luke chapter 13. Just one verse, verse 31. Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, Herod did want him dead. Now, part of the reason why Herod wanted him dead was uh, Herod's job was to keep peace over the area that he was ruling. And this Jesus guy was starting to cause some commotion and that was going to make him look bad and he needed to probably have to take care of it. 
and he wanted him dead. The Pharisees came in this situation and they tell Jesus, we're concerned about you, Jesus. You might want to get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. But the reasons why the Herodians and the Pharisees in our passage for tonight come together to trap Jesus is because they both had a common goal and that was having Jesus put to death. But Jesus is aware of their true purposes, even though they flatter him. Look again at verse 16. Look at how they describe him. Look at what they say to him in verse 16 of Matthew 22. It says, And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you care about no one's opinion. Let me ask you a question. If that was the case, why, did they, why didn't they believe him? If they really believed that he was true and taught the way of God truthfully and wasn't worried about other people's opinions, why didn't they follow him? Yeah, you know what's kind of ironic? I'm going to kind of lay the, the foundation for you and then show you a scripture in just a little bit that's going to show you the irony of what's really going on here. Um, first off, they think they have him trapped. You see, the Herodians, they had no problem paying taxes to Caesar. There was a poll tax that they had to pay every year. And the poll tax that the Jews had to pay pretty much was their, uh, the, the, Rome's way of saying, we own you. The Herodians had no problem with it because there's so many good things that came with Rome being in power in their mind. And so their trap was if Jesus says it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, they've got him because he's a treason guy. The Pharisees, though, didn't like the fact that they had to pay a tax to Caesar every year, that poll tax, that they were under Rome. Because in their mind, they were to be a one nation under God. And they were to be following God, not man and not Caesar. So if Jesus says it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians can accuse him of treason. But if he says it's OK to pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees say we got him now because that shows that he's not following God. And if he is trying to be a rabbi and a, uh, he claims to be the Messiah, he needs to be following God, not man. So whichever way he goes, He's trapped in their mind. If he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians have him. If he says, pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees have him. Now, what Jesus does is very interesting. He simply points out that their coins had Caesar's image on it. But by the way, how did he have how did he point that out? Did he point it out or did he have them point it out? Exactly. He even had them say it. Whose image is on there? They said Caesar's. Then he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, don't miss what he's done. There's a couple things I want to pull out from this. When he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, he's taking care of the Herodians. When he says, give to God what is God's, he's taking care of the Pharisees because he's still saying, you need to follow God. But there's something else here. When he says, give to God what's God's, it's a command. I'm going to take it in another direction real quick. Go with me to, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verses 26 and 27. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image 
and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Whose image was on the coin? Caesar's. So since Caesar's image was on the coin, he says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Let me ask you a question. Whose image is on you? It's God's. When God says, give to God what's God's, he said, give to Caesar what's got Caesar's image on it. Give to God what, got, what has God's image on it. We are to give him our lives. Now, we've all heard that, but I, I, I want you to hopefully hear through the Spirit, not through Jim Johnson trying to convince you, but we have that same problem that the Pharisees are struggling with. We still kind of want to be in charge. We, 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 we want to claim God and His authority and his, his rule in our lives, just like the Pharisees would. But at the same time, how many of us are still wrestling on a daily basis? I know I am because of my flesh are still wrestling with that desire to not be under his authority. You know what's kind of ironic? Go to John chapter 19. Remember again what uh, the Pharisees are trying to trip him up into saying. I'm, I'm going to make sure you're with me here. The part of the Pharisees' trap was if he said, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, in their mind, what were they saying? You're against God. You're against God. Very good. Go to John chapter 19 and look at what the Pharisees are going to say, starting in verse 12, just a few days from our story in Matthew 22. From then on, this is in the middle of Jesus' trial, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Look who is here now. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Isn't that interesting? They were trying to trap him into saying, Caesar is my king, pay, I'll pay taxes to Caesar, and they were going to get him. Just a few days later, they themselves are going to be crying out, we don't have any king but Caesar. The same thing they were trying to trap him into, they say. Isn't that interesting? Now let me take you back again to what we've been looking at before we move on. Whose image is on you guys? That was a command by Jesus. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And if his image is on you and his image is on me, and especially if we've been bought with a price, if we've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. And we have to daily lay our flesh on the altar. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about that. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service. And folks, I just want to remind you that the scripture says that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for the one who died for us. True worship is not going to church and putting money in an offering plate, saying a few prayers before dinner. True worship is 
Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all to the glory of God. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 15. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 15 says this. And he, Jesus, died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I'm going to say it again. Give to God what's God's. Go to Galatians chapter two. Look at verse 20. Passage we know well, but let's look at it again in this context. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, for years we've looked at give to Caesar what's Caesar's and just looked at the tax aspect of it. How many of you have ever allowed the Spirit of God to tell you the second half of the command? Give to God what has his image on it. That's you. By the way, if you've trusted him as your savior, you have. But daily, you don't have to get saved again. We have to renew our minds and lay our flesh on the altar. Daily, we have to acknowledge that that same attitude that the Pharisees had of, we want to worship God, but we also kind of want to be in control. We have that same problem too. Go with Matthew 22. Let's look at the next section, verses 23 through 46. Don't miss the first words here. Matthew 22, verse 23. The same day. Remember, the Pharisees and the Herodians have just been uh, refuted by Jesus. The same day, Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother so too the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So now the Sadducees come up. This is another group. You've got Herodians, you've got Pharisees, you've got Sadducees. The Sadducees come up and they try to trip Jesus up in his words and build themselves up over the Pharisees in the process. Since the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders who didn't believe in a resurrection to come. But the Pharisees did. But there's something else here about the Sadducees that most people don't know. It's in your Bible, but most people don't realize it. And Jesus is dealing with that in this response as well. It's been something we've all looked at. I've had people tell me over the years, what's it going to be like in heaven? I've been married for 50 years to this lady and in heaven. And uh, how am I going to be in heaven and not know her as my wife and all this kind of stuff? And we're going to be like the angels and all this kind of stuff. Go with me real quickly to uh, Acts chapter 23. Let's let the scripture lay a foundation for us first. Jesus is dealing with the fact that, they, that these guys don't believe in a resurrection. But he's dealing with something else as well. 
In Acts chapter 23, look at verses 6 through 8. Paul's on trial and before the Jews. In verse 6, And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor what? Nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Isn't that interesting? The Pharisees, not, I'm sorry, the Sadducees didn't only believe that there was no resurrection. They thought that once you died, that was it. They didn't really believe in a spiritual realm. And they didn't believe in angels. So Jesus' response to them is, you guys are wrong. We'll get to that in just a second. Because when you are in the resurrection, which there is, people don't marry and are given, aren't given in marriage, but they're like what? He's pointing out something else that he knew they didn't believe in, and he's using that as his illustration. But before we go too much further, let's go back to Deuteronomy 25, and let's look at where they're coming from. See, because these Sadducees come to Jesus. Go to Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Uh, these Sadducees come to Jesus using Scripture as their proof of what they think proves that there's no resurrection. Deuteronomy 25, look at verse 5. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man doesn't wish to take his brother's wife, and then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate and the elders say, my, to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I don't wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face and he shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. This is the law of leveret marriage. We know the story of Ruth and Boaz. That's why Boaz married Ruth, because he was a kinsman and she had died not having produced any offspring. And so that her husband's name would be carry on. Our near relative was to marry her. Now, if you remember in the story, there was one closer to them, Boaz, and he was given first right, and he didn't want to do it. And so then it passed on to Boaz. And so in the law, God had set it up that there was, if a man died and he produced no children, the brother was to produce a child through his wife, or the, his brother's wife, to carry on that family's name. Of course, that meant that if the brother produced a child through his, his brother's wife, the inheritance that he was going to give would go to his brother. That's why a lot of the guys wouldn't want to do it, because they would their portfolio would be diversified. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They'd have to give some of their inheritance to a kid that's not theirs, because it's now in the brother's name. So the Sadducees now come, taking the scripture, taking the law of Moses, and they say, this proves that there's no resurrection. Now, they don't really say it that way. They act like there is a resurrection. 
And they say there was this guy and he didn't produce any offspring. And so he died. And then his brother took the wife and he then died with no offspring. And then it happened again. And they, they built up a straw man and it's a hypothetical situation. But in this story, let's just imagine that it was true. Can you even imagine being the fourth or fifth brother marrying this girl? Because she's a black widow. I mean, everybody that marries her dies, you know, kind of a deal. But in this straw man that they put up, they come to Jesus and they say, in the resurrection, whose, whose wife will she be? Because they've all been married to her. By the way, be real careful of using a passage of scripture to back up your preconceived notion. But we all have a tendency to do it. We believe something so strongly, we then look for a verse of scripture to back us up. But look closely at what Jesus says to them in verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There's two aspects here I want to talk to you about. We need to keep, have an understanding of both to keep us from error. I see many Christians who hold firm to God's word, but they deny the Holy Spirit's power in today's world. I deal with a lot of Christians who they're solid and fundamental on the word of God and they believe that God has given us his word and they try to live by the Bible, but they don't acknowledge anything when it comes to the spirit's power. I've run into a lot of them. There are actually there's a whole group of Christians that don't believe that God speaks through his spirit anymore to us, that he's already spoken. You're nodding your head. You've run across them. He's given us the closed canon of Scripture. He's already done speaking. Therefore, all we need to do is just know what this book says and do what it says. And they actually mock anybody that thinks that God's Spirit's still speaking. Oh, they're solid on the Word of God, but they're kind of weak on the Holy Spirit's power. Oh, there's Christians on the other side, by the way, who are so into the things of the Spirit that they fall prey to false teaching because they don't check it against the Scriptures. Jesus says that we get into error when we don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And then Jesus takes them back to Exodus chapter 3. Go back to Exodus chapter 3. Again, remember how Jesus, or let me just remind you that Jesus knows the real motive behind your questions. In Exodus chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 6. This is where Jesus quotes from. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Jesus reminds them and he says, hey, uh, as for the resurrection that you guys don't believe in, what you're pretending that you do, but you think this verse in Deuteronomy proves that it's not true. As for the resurrection, don't you remember what God himself said? 
He said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. Oh, by the way, when he said that, they all had died many years before. But he didn't say, I was the God of these guys. I am the God of these guys. He acted like they were still alive. And he says, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Go with me to Mark's account. I haven't done this in a while. And back earlier in our study of Matthew, I would take you almost every week to Mark's account or Luke's account. But I didn't want to wear you out with that. You're able to do that kind of a double checking yourself. But I'm going to do that for this section in the next tonight because I think Mark's account helps us quite a bit. Mark chapter 12, look at verses 18 through 27. In Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves the wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Now, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I love this. You are quite wrong. Remember the situation in the setting. It's the same day that the Pharisees have been refuted. Now they come because they're going to win and they're going to look better than the Pharisees. They're, they're theological enemies. And Jesus makes them look bad. I want to talk to you about a couple of things real quick. One is this. Um, you and I have questions. If you don't, you're lying to yourself. But God knows the real reason for your question. And so don't be surprised when you find yourself talking to God about other situations or other people that he doesn't take it back to you. Because he's going to take care of those people too, but he's working on each of us. And I found over the years that God, very lovingly, but very clearly, very firmly, a lot of times when I want to talk to him about something, that I want to control the conversation. He'll take it and take me to a level that I wasn't ready to go to, because I've been hiding that, not wanting to deal with that. Let me just give you a little heads up. As you grow in your relationship with the Lord, don't be surprised if he doesn't lovingly say, um, let me point out a couple of things that you're struggling with right now that need correction. And he'll use the scriptures to do it. And he'll speak to you through his spirit. Also, beware of trying to prove what you believe by finding scripture to back it up. Let the scripture build your theology. Let God teach you as you study the word and all of a sudden you see it coming together and then you start to believe what his scripture is saying. Don't believe something and then try to find a verse to back it up. That's dangerous. And there's a lot of false teachers out there who are real good at it because they can take a scripture here and a scripture there and they can convince you 
of something that's not biblically true because it doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture. You see, the Sadducees really believed that that one passage in Deuteronomy proved that there can't be a resurrection because whose wife would she be? This has got to prove it. Let me just chase one rabbit for you. Many of us have wrestled with what's heaven going to be like? I mean, how will it be like heaven if I know my mom's not there and she's in hell? How will it be heaven if I know my wife or my husband's not there? How will it be heaven if I see my wife or my husband, but I don't know them? Will I know them as my wife or my husband? We have all these questions, don't we? The more I've studied the scripture, instead of just trying to find an answer, the more I studied the scripture, the more I started to realize God's word actually deals with some of these things. I actually think the scripture hints at the fact that when we get to the new heaven and the new earth, hopefully you remember, there's still a tribulation period to come. It's going to be a rapture of the church, tribulation period on the earth, then a millennial kingdom where we're going to rule and reign with Christ and Jesus is going to be on this earth. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will be released for a season. He'll be destroyed. Then comes what we call the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and all that. Go to Isaiah 65. Go to Isaiah 65. Look at verse 17. Once you get to verse 18, it starts describing the millennial kingdom. But look at verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and, new, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. How about that? I think the scripture, scripture hints at the fact that, yeah, there may be people that you love who aren't in heaven. But at that point, you won't know it. I believe the scripture teaches that during the millennial kingdom, we will remember because there's going to be the feast and there's going to be the sacrifices again during the millennial kingdom. And of course, Jesus himself is going to be there and the gospel is going to be still being preached. But when you get to the new heaven and the new earth and we're worried about spending eternity with someone that how will I know her but not know her as my wife? Because I've been married for 30 years now. Becky and I hit 30 years on our anniversary, sorry, 30 year anniversary on our last trip. I love my wife. We, we've been married 30 years and I hope we get 30 more if Jesus tarries. But the scripture actually kind of hints at the fact that when we get to the new heaven and the new earth after the millennial kingdom, all that stuff goes by the wayside. Goes by the wayside. Again, interesting. But I also want you to notice that Jesus doesn't get into a debate with them. He just shares scripture and leaves it alone. You know why? Because the word of God is powerful all by itself, folks. <clears throat> I shared with you last week that there is uh, a danger in many words. Go with me real quick to Ecclesiastes. This isn't in my notes, but this is something that God's been kind of, over the last few weeks, God's had me just personally, for my own study, just meditate on the book of Ecclesiastes for other reasons. But as I was doing so, I ran across something that ties into where we were last week and kind of ties into where we are tonight. In Ecclesiastes, look at chapter 5. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they're doing evil. 
Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God's in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Now, when you do vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools, but pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and don't say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. All these people are coming up to Jesus in front of all these crowds and they think they have it figured out. And they're going to share what they think. They have an agenda. They have their own pride. And in front of the crowds, in front of their enemies, Jesus kind of humbles them. I think the sooner we Christians acknowledge we don't have God figured out, the more winsome we'd be. This much we do know, Jesus was not only a man, he was also God. And he lived without sin. And God punished him for our sins instead of us. And he rose from the dead by his own power and he's now giving salvation to anyone who believes that what he did will cover them. Acknowledge your need of a savior. Acknowledge your need of someone else to get you into heaven. And when you by faith trust what Jesus did covers you, the Bible says you'll be saved. And from that point on, he'll start teaching you more things. But don't ever think you've arrived. Beware of many words. Beware of winning arguments on Facebook. Jesus didn't get into debates with these people. Actually, Jesus taught us, if you remember back in Matthew chapter 7, I know it's been a long time since we were there, but in Matthew 7, he said in verse 6, don't cast your pearl before swine. Hebrews chapter 4, I want you to quote this with me. You don't have to turn there. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and what? Active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I want you to see verse 13, though. Go with me to verse 13. A lot of people don't realize verse 13. We can quote 12, but I want you to see verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. We'll finish verse 12. It's able to divide between spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from God's sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All Jesus did was remind them of the scripture and he believed the scripture was powerful enough to accomplish God's word. Some of you in here are Sunday school teachers or preachers and pastors. We've been taught over the years as pastors and elders that we're to share the scripture and then we have to give them application. Have you ever heard that? Give them application. Show them how to apply it. I'm starting to realize I think that's the Holy Spirit's job. David was hiding in the rocks and the caves from Saul 
And Jonathan goes and finds him. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel, you can double check me later on, 1 Samuel 23, 15 through 18. It says that Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. All Jonathan did was remind him of what God had already said. You've been anointed the next king of Israel already by Samuel. My father even knows that you will be king. And if God's anointed you to be the next king, you're going to be the next king. I'm paraphrasing it, but that's what he said to him. He reminded him of what God had said. And then Jonathan went back to the palace. We a lot of times want to help things, help people and fix things. I'm just going to encourage you. Share with people the word of God. They want to get into a debate with you. A lot of words make us look bad, embarrass us and don't do any good. Share what scripture says and leave it alone. Second Timothy chapter three. Look at verses 16 and 17. Again, a passage we could quote, but listen to it again. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want me to give you just a fun, silly illustration of how foolish this is for us to think that the scripture needs our help? To win an argument. The Bible in the book of Peter clearly says. Not just Peter, but also in Timothy. That a woman's beauty shouldn't come from her outward adorning. But from the inner beauty of her spirit. You all know what I'm talking about. But you know what we've done over the years? We've taken that passage that simply says. That a woman's beauty shouldn't be coming from her outward beauty. As much as it be coming from the inward beauty. And we've taken it and we say, okay, that means they can't wear pants, they can't braid their hair. And it's not what the passage said at all. But we felt the scripture needed clarifying. By the way, who were the masters at that? Pharisees. Pharisees took the law of God and then they added to it. I'm going to challenge you to stop trying to play the role of the Holy Spirit and stop trying to tell people how they ought to live then and just share the scripture and let the spirit of God do what he's going to do in someone's life and believe that his word is powerful and enough by itself. We show that we don't think the word of God is living and active and able to do what it needs to do. We don't show that it's profitable and able to correct and reprove when we think that we have to then add our words to it. I don't know if you all ever noticed that most of our Bible studies are me just giving you scripture upon scripture upon scripture upon scripture. That's all I got. Because I think the word's powerful enough itself. Let me give you another example of that. Go to Luke 16. I've sometimes gone home and actually counted how many scriptures God has us go to in a Bible study on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. And it's a rare night that it's not 30 to 40 different scriptures. And some of you say, that's it? Felt like a whole lot more than that. That's okay. I'd love to be like Jesus and have my whole Bible study be. Have you not read? Have you not read? Go to Luke 16. Look at verses 27 through 31. In Jesus' story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's a whole lot here. But look at what Abraham's response is. His response is, 
They have the scriptures. The scriptures are powerful enough. No, the scriptures need help. I remember when I was a young boy and doing the faith and I kept thinking, boy, if this celebrity would get saved, that would really do. You ever had those thoughts? Wouldn't it be cool if this celebrity or that celebrity would get saved? Then people might really believe. That showed my ignorance. If they believe because a celebrity believed, their faith is in the celebrity's faith, not in the word of God. Folks, let me just tell you, Jesus, when he was questioned, shared scripture, left it alone. Let the spirit of God do its work. Let's go back to Matthew 22 and let's go to second to last section. Verse 34. When the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, I'm going to read to you Mark's account real quick. Because again, Mark's account is going to bring out a little bit more for us. Go to Mark 12. And look at verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. As you put these together, you see now what's going on here. First off, let me give you a little background. The Pharisees and the scribes had taken the time to go back and look at the Old Testament, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they had counted that there were 613 laws in the Pentateuch. That there were 613 laws. Some of them were thou, thou shalt not, others were thou shalt. But there were 13 Sorry, 613 laws. But the scribes and the Pharisees would argue with each other over which ones were more important than others. I mean, because if there's 613, I mean, who's going to be able to keep 613? Let's kind of break the list down into ones that are heavy. That's what they called them. Heavy ones and light ones. Ones that are more important than others. By the way, some of you were probably raised in a denomination that taught that some sins were venial sins and some sins were mortal sins. We all wanted to do that a little bit. We all want to kind of play with, well, what's most important to God? Go ahead. The little white lie. Exactly. The little white lie. Exactly. Go ahead. I just said yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's kind of like when my wife hands me her honeydew list. I think to myself, there's no way I'm going to get all this done. Which one's most important to you? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> what will make you the happiest? You know? Of course, she's like God and says all of them. But that's I go down another road here. But here's the deal. Now they come to Jesus. The Pharisees come back by themselves now. And they say, 
what are the, what's the most important commandment? Now, they're doing a couple of things here. One is they're trying to see if he's on their side because they've been having these arguments over the law. Two is they're wanting to check his doctrine. They want to check his orthodoxy. And Jesus does something very powerful. He quotes from the Shema, which the ultra-Orthodox Jews would quote every day. Go to Deuteronomy 6. Let me show you where that is. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, was something the ultra-Orthodox Jews would, would quote every single day. Hear, O Israel. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the first and greatest commandment. But go over to Leviticus chapter 19. You'll see that in Leviticus 19 is where he actually quotes the second one. In verse 18, Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's interesting. He didn't even quote from the Ten Commandments. Well, he kind of did in the fact that if you are able to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will keep the first four. You'll have no other gods before him. You'll honor his day and all those things. And if you will love your neighbor as yourself, you'll keep the next six. You won't lie. You won't murder. You won't steal. You won't covet. But what Jesus does is he just simply says, love God And then love each other. And this sums up all the law and the prophets. In other words, it's all important. But if you focus on just loving God and loving each other, you'll do it all. That's it. By the way, the scripture has been saying that all along. You've been hearing me say this to you for years, and I'm going to say it again. Stop measuring how healthy your church is by whether or not you're growing numerically. That's a bunch of hooey that we've been taught. And it's been so ingrained in us that we can't even think any other way. But the scripture never tells us that that's a measurement. The scripture says that growth in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our love toward all the saints is what we should be measuring all along. Peter, when he wrote his first book, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, Crave as newborn babies spiritual milk that you may grow thereby. And then when he read his second book, at the end of his second book, chapter 3, verse 18, he says this, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. You've heard me say it, I'll say it again. He never wrote to a church and said, How many are running? What's your attendance? He never said, How many of you reached for Christ? He just said, I want to hear that you're growing in your relationship with Jesus and your love for each other. That's what we should be measuring. Because if we really love the Lord and we really love each other, everything else falls into place. Go to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 12 and verses 20 and 21. First John chapter 4, look at verses 7 through 12. Beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. 
And in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Jump down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Like I said before, if you love God, you'll keep the first, of the, of the first four of the Ten Commandments. And if you love others, you'll keep the last six. Actually, as you've already said, Glenn, if we love God and love each other, we'll keep all the 613 laws of the Old Testament in the, in the Pentateuch. In the time we have left tonight, let's wrap up chapter 22, because Jesus now turns the tables. Remember, we've just finished reading how no one, in Mark's account, no one dared ask him any more questions. From that point on, nobody's really quizzing Jesus. But Jesus decides to ask them some questions, because he wants to get to a root issue that he knows is a problem, and keeping them from fully understanding who he is. Go to Matthew 22, look at verses 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that the Messiah wasn't to be called the son of David because it meant a descendant of David. And if you remember from our study in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it talks about how Jesus was the descendant of Abraham, son of David. It's a term. I, I don't have the time. I could take you through an Old Testament study and show you how the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, the Christ, that's the term they use in the Greek, that the coming Messiah was going to be a descendant of David. A son of David is the term that they used. This isn't the issue. But Jesus says, let me ask you a question. And he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. You can go double check. But that section in your scripture that's quoted there is Psalm 110, verse 1. And David, in the Spirit, being led of the Spirit, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. They all knew that that passage was referring to the coming Messiah, because if you read the rest of the Psalm 110, you'll see it's calling, talking about the Messiah and the coming Christ. And so Jesus says, let me ask you a question. Um, if the Messiah is the son of David or a descendant of David, how come David, being led of the Spirit, calls him Lord? Actually, how come he calls him God? Here's what I want to do in the time we have left. There's a lot of people that still don't fully understand that Jesus was not only 100% man while he was on the earth, he was 100% God. Let me take you back to a passage we can all quote. In Isaiah 9, 6, we love to say it at Christmas time. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's the next part? Almighty God. What's the next part? Nope. Wonderful was the first part. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God. Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 
Listen to that again. The Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah was that he would be God, Almighty God, the everlasting Father. But they totally missed this because in their mind, the Messiah was going to be a man. He was going to be a descendant of David and he was going to work for them. That's really what their attitude was. Oh, yeah. Who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? But at the same time, they wanted him to get them out from underneath Rome authority. But they thought it was just a man. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, verse 1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Verse 18, it actually says that God, the, the one God, who's at the Father's side, has made Him known. I'm going to close with two passages of Scripture tonight. The first one is in John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verses 48 through 59. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59, the Jews answered Jesus and they said, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I don't speak on my own, uh, seek my own glory. This, there is one who seeks it and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. By the way, if you were to keep going on in that passage in Exodus chapter three, we looked at tonight earlier where he described, God described himself to Moses at the burning bush as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A little later on, Moses says, what's your name? So that when I go to the people of Israel, I'll tell them what your name is. And God says, my name is I am. That's the name that I'm to be known from now on. So when Jesus says that he had seen Abraham, they go, hey man, you've seen Abraham? He says, before Abraham was even born, I am. I mean, folks, he was claiming to be God. Of course, they did not like that. They rejected it and they tried to kill him. Go to Luke 22. Look at verses 66 through 71. Luke 22, verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, Tell us. But, if he, but he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Stop. They said, are you the Christ? Remember, he's been telling them all along that he was. By the way, people say, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Yes, he did. If you go to John chapter 4, he actually told the woman at the well that he was the Messiah. 
She even said, uh, they say that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says, the I who speak to you am he. When he kept saying, I am, I am. By the way, if you go back and look in the actual Greek, and I am the bread of life, and I am the living water, it says, I am. I am. He claimed to be God. He never hid it. He claimed to be the Messiah. They just didn't get it. So he said, from now on, the Son of Man, the one you're looking for, the descendant of David, will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They knew full well what he just said. They said, are you the Son of God then? He says, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. By the way, he allowed them to kill him that time. Because it was time. I'm going to close by asking you a question again. Is he God? I'm going to ask you again. Is he God? Well, let me ask you a question. You're to give to God what's God's. That's you. Daily, you're going to have to. You're already saved if you've trusted in Christ. Don't worry about losing your salvation. You can't. But you have to daily... Lay aside your wishes, your plans, your agenda. You stop thinking that he works for you and let him be God. There's a funeral that Duke's going to do tomorrow of a friend of mine, a real good friend in this area who died of COVID. He was only in his 50s. Or was he 60? I think he was maybe 60. 50. Yeah, he was in his 50s or early 60s at the most. I don't think he was even over 60. But, and this is one of the most godly men, a close friend of mine. And let me tell you, as he's been in the hospital, he's got a lot of kids, six, seven, eight of them. He left the totals when he came into the church. He still up with you. Exactly. <laughs> I've been praying for him to be healed. Praying hard. But God said no. And I have to say, he's God. And I'm not. And there's too many people out there that have claimed that Jesus is God. But when he doesn't act like they think he should, they walk away. I don't understand. I don't fully understand and I never will until I see him face to face. I see through a glass dimly. But I can tell you this much. Daily, I have to remind myself, he's God, and I'm not. I love you. Thanks for coming. See you in two weeks. No Bible study next week.